I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. The anarchists and Trotskyists are out fomenting riots. Sounds a little silly, but the stupid Brits will buy it. Unemployment, apathy, no future down the line, while our upper-class governors lead lovely lives of crime. Tonight, the graphically radical Paul Buell. Our music tonight comes from The Fugs, formed in 1963 by the poets Ed Sanders, Tuli Kupferberg, and Ken Weaver. This song, Here Comes the Levelers, is from the Reagan-era release No More Slavery. music won't be fooled again. And here come the levelers, the levelers, true levelers. They dance on Greenham Common with the Shelley circling revelers. Paul Buell is one of the foremost historians of American radicalism and the American left, having authored or edited over 30 books, including works such as Images of American Radicalism, Marxism and the United States, The Encyclopedia of the American Left, and Radical Hollywood. He is also the editor of 12 comic art books that are wide-ranging yet consistent in socialist and radical perspective. There are books on Jesus, Lincoln, The Beats, Bohemians, The Wobblies, Rosa Luxemburg, and most recently on the Irish martyr James Conley, who was executed by the British for his role in the Easter Uprising of 1916. He's also done a comic adaptation of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, titled A People's History of American Empire. Paul Buell is also the editor of the project Bernie Sanders Comics. Buell founded the journal Radical America and served as editor until the early 70s, later founding a journal of popular culture studies called cultural correspondence, as well as founding and directing the Oral History of the American Left archive at New York University. In 2006, he also helped found the rebirth of SDS, also called Students for a Democratic Society. In today's show, we cover a lot of ground, leap over it really, but in the process touch on many continuities in the history of the radical left, and consequently in its opposition to the dehumanizing and alienating organizing principles of capitalist economies. There is life in this radical left still, and according to Buell, it's the massive support for Bernie Sanders that has made this clear. One thing I should share, our sound quality tonight is not ideal, but if you're patient, you'll find your ears for it. I wish I could say I did it on purpose, because as assistant producer Rob Schoon says, it seems like the audio equivalent of Buell's hand-published editions of the SDS journal Radical America. Legible, a little rough around the edges, but it's the content that counts anyway. The graphically radical Paul Buehler. Let's jump in at the now and work our way backwards, uh, I think, as much as anything else. Um, in terms of uh, politics, uh, clearly you've been... Um, working hard for Bernie Sanders, and um, I guess if you don't mind uh, talking a little bit about what Bernie Sanders means to you uh, personally, uh, as a politician, as a public servant, um, but as a um, as someone who seems to have lit a fire under so many people as well. I would say that going back to the late 1950s and early 1960s, thinking back all that way, the openings for socialistic ideas, let alone socialistic politics. 
politics have been few and far between. Uh, consequently, uh, hearing Norman, a very aged Norman Thomas speak in 1964 was uh, terrific, being part of Students for Democratic Society in the following few years uh, was absolutely great, and there were so many hopes on the horizon across the whole world. Uh, and then after 1975 or so, uh, things get sparse in terms of uh, uh, realizable ideals here in the U.S. I could enumerate them, but uh, I don't need to. We really have to get to uh, Occupy Black Lives Matter and the Bernie Sanders campaign to put ourselves in the 21st century and amidst a rising generation of young people who do not accept the system as it exists to be a, a realizable, uh, understandable even, a uh, world that they can accommodate themselves to that will make them feel secure, let alone confident and happy in their country. And uh, since the odds were so staggeringly great uh, against Bernie Sanders having a campaign, I, I feel sure he was quite surprised himself at the response and therefore had a slow and perhaps decisively slow start on his campaign. Uh, but I ha happened to be present at the first Bernie event that, draw, that drew nationwide press attention, the first one they were willing to pay attention to, and that is a crowd of 10,000 in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, in July of uh, 2015. And the enthusiasm of the audience, the number of young people on hand, uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders' ability to respond to that enthusiasm the way the best of political leaders uh, can respond uh, by offering a vision of reform and social transformation and lifting people up in ways that uh, one rarely hears. Every now and then I'm thinking back to Bella Abzug, uh, of course Martin Luther King, uh, and uh, some others I heard who had that sort of power. Uh, it electrified a large number of people. Now I was slow in coming to a full realization of the situation that of young people that Bernie Sanders was speaking to my friend uh, here in Madison, Robert McChesney and John Nichols uh, came out with a book called People Get Ready, great title, uh, a few months ago, and they explained with endless graphs, it seems, and a lot of prose, how upward mobility more or less ended for young people after 1980. And with accelerating college debt and all the other things we can point to, the great American dream uh, pretty much ceased to exist, and they found themselves at age 28 living at home with their parents and uh, not being lazy people but seeing no real horizon in front of them. Uh, it may be that these people were aroused by Occupy or not. I'm not sure. The numbers responding to the Bernie Sanders campaign are so huge that they dwarf Occupy, as incredibly exciting as that seemed at the time, but, and also Black Lives Matter. Uh, and uh, suddenly, uh, there we were in Iowa in the fall with thousands of young people declaring they were interested in socialism or at least socialistic ideas. It not only hadn't happened since the 1960s, we rarely, we of that generation, rarely used that word socialism because it had been so fatally connected with the so-called socialist countries uh, run by the USSR and Eastern Europe, and maybe also uh, China, 
why talk about liberation and, and revolution? But these were substitutes for the word socialism. Uh, uh, now, uh, when Bernie Sanders excites people about socialism, he, he will say it's more like Scandinavia. And anyone who visits Scandinavia, as I happened to recently, uh, will see the societies are well-ordered. Uh, some places, the harbors of major cities are so clean that young people swim in them safely. Uh, and in many other ways, uh, the prison systems mean to rehabilitate people. The schools are good. The school food is good. And all those things that, that uh, have been uh, uh, noticed, they're there, whatever the weaknesses and contradictions in the societies are. So it's not exactly pie in the sky. Uh, but uh, Bernie Sanders is pointing toward the possibility of people living in a different way. And boy, does that seem meaningful to young people and also to people who are uh, retired. Uh, not only because we fear the loss of Social Security, but also because we are remembering our youth. So we get a lot of Bernie audiences with huge numbers of people under 30, huge numbers of people over 65, and not too many between 30 and 65. That's a fascinating phenomenon. You mentioned Occupy there as well, and I think that in some sense, uh, Bernie, too, has come to you know, sort of represent a, a kind of iconography now as well that has been um, possibly effectively shelved by you know, uh, the media conglomerates that we deal with and, and the ways in which you know the Sanders campaign uh, constantly portrayed in a, in a quixotic sort of way as as not as potent and powerful as it is. You, you want to think that if only, like <laughs> I'm always in that place where I think if only this yeah. would have been televised, right? Here's the fascinating thing: is that without social media, uh, without the relative loss of the power of the printed newspaper and and everything else that goes along with it. Uh, Bernie Sanders would not have a chance in hell. Uh, our great success in uh, news delivery in the later 1960s and early 1970s was the underground newspaper, which was successful in Bloomington, among other places, because uh, printing technology had made short runs of eight-page eight newspapers very, very cheap to produce, and ads could be sold to all kinds of places. Head shops come to mind, uh, lo other local businesses. And we were able to deliver news about the Vietnam War to, to uh, young people who were facing the draft, uh, the news that they could not possibly get otherwise, and also about police repression and the, the uh, way universities uh, were producing the most dangerous material for uh, use to kill people and, and all that sort of stuff. Now let's fast forward 50 years almost, and we find social media, <laughs> the wonderful, wonderful creation of, of uh, comic art, which I know a lot about, but also layout in those very underground newspapers. They look like no newspapers that had ever existed, has been uh, replicated or realized in a new vein by uh, the memes. Uh, the visual creations that people manage to do uh, on Facebook and Twitter and various other places, which have unloosed, unloosed enormous creativity of people who never thought of themselves as artists, along with the appearances of, of Bernie to huge crowds. It's not enough, but it has taken up an astonishing amount of space that could not possibly be taken up, uh, given the uh, disdaining 
possible, but uh, the creativity that's gone into making it almost possible is staggering, and so much has happened in only 11 months. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left and art comics editor extraordinaire. Let's back uh, backtrack a little bit there. Obviously, you, you, you travel a great distance in all of these comments you know, from the uh, 60s through to the present. But uh, one thing that you you bring uh, to mind again, the, uh, the idea that the sort of uh, 60s ended in the 80s, I suppose, right? The, the idea that there was a, a concerted effort, it seems to me, to, to shut down this particular capacity to reach people through these, uh, I guess, alternative spaces, uh, as you say, the underground, uh, head shops in particular, uh, these strange little, you know, markets of uh, opportunity to be in ways that you weren't allowed to be otherwise. That this this is carried over today, where you see this reflected in in what may be might be possible within the politics, as you see the the youth uh, and and as you say the the aging population as well uh, blend into that underground space in some sense. Well, I think that's right. Uh, to go back again, those uh, head shops which sold longs, uh, locally made jewelry, uh, posters. And most notably for me, so-called underground comics, one of which I published, Radical America Comics for SDS in 1969, were uh, shut down by the by local police by the end of the 1970s, and that's about the time that the genre of underground comics used to exist. Uh, but it's also true to say that that era saw the launching of uh, many listener-sponsored, new listener-sponsored stations. Uh, and the sort of transformation, partial transformation of university uh, sponsored stations to more diverse programming in terms of uh, alternative music, but also uh, other kinds of news and analysis and so forth, uh, meaning that something that uh, wasn't within the mainstream and wasn't underground and openly radical could exist as a sort of alt culture in the 80s and 90s uh, entirely contrary to Reaganism and everything Reaganism existed, but also pretty self-consciously critical of the rightward drift of the Democratic Party that Bernie Sanders wrote about in his autobiography appearing in 1996. The focus on um, another way to be is is consistent here, right? The the focus that there is an America that exists underneath the capitalist profit um, corporate society that shows us uh, advertising and uh, focus on things that aren't necessarily to our life benefit in some sense <laughs> that we are we are distracted into attending to other things when a lot of what uh, seems to me to speak through this underground space is very social you know very communal very uh, very hand to hand in some sense um yeah i think that's true uh, but in the 80s and 90s the, the space for that was very slight mm. And uh, the invention of new things, DIY, is is a, is a good example. Zines, the replication of zines, uh, which were actually Xeroxed in large numbers, uh, offers another example, and there are plenty more. But they don't represent a widespread because the sense 
that resistance was possible would or another world was possible would only merge let's say with the Jesse Jackson campaigns of 1984 and 1988 and uh, a scattering of other activities the the demonstrations in Seattle in 1999 teamsters and turtles marked the possibility of of some sections of the labor movement more progressive sections of the labor movement responding to the other social movements uh, feminism ecology and so forth and finding the basis for a, a new coalition when many of the older bases were in a steady state of collapse. Only in the end of 1995 did the most thuggish, uh, corrupt leadership of American labor movements be defeated uh, by progressives, but so little was left of the American labor movement outside of public unions that uh, it was uh, problematic for the labor movement to make a comeback. Hmm. And I think this time around, the dedication of uh, AFSCME and uh, SEIU to uh, Hillary Clinton is an indication that it's still in the hands of this sort of thuggish bureaucracy, which doesn't really want change very much, but desperately seeks to hold on to what it already owns, that is, a considerable membership. You know, you mentioned um, progressive labor there, and uh, I think it was on your Facebook page uh, just the other day, you, you asserted that you thought Bernie Sanders was our Gene Debs. You want to expand on that? Yes, I, if, if somebody would step forward and offer me the money for an artist, uh, I would proceed with a, a Eugene Debs uh, comic singing through the eyes of Bernie Sanders hmm. because Bernie Sanders up in Vermont in the end of the 70s produced a, an LP, amazingly enough, of himself, double amazingly enough, uh, reading uh, some text by Eugene Debs. There's no actual oral recording of Eugene Debs. Hmm. Some have uh, popped up, but they weren't uh, authentic. So his voice is really not known. And uh, Bernie Sanders saw so much of his own aspiration and his own visions in the uh, stirring words and incredibly brave life of Eugene Debs that he sought within the limitations, but generally a different world the present to follow that path or to find a way to create that path again. Uh, and he doesn't talk about Gene Debs all the time. It's not a central subject for today, but it's in Bernie's mind all the time. And since I was a, a historian of American socialism with enormous fondness for the pre-1920 days when optimism was very wild and, and there was a, a lot of greater sense of humor within the left uh, based on optimism about the future, uh, that uh, Eugene Debs sort of epitomizes that optimism but also the, the, the spirit of resistance. If you want to be president a very long while, be sure you invade a very small aisle fort. If it is tiny and its soldiers are few, they'll never make a fool out of you. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left, art comics editor extraordinaire, and hopeful supporter of Bernie Sanders. When we come back, we'll hear a bit more about the progressive socialist Eugene V. Debs and the 19th century artist and socialist William Morris on our way to socialism by way of art comics. Stay with us for more on Interchange on WFHB. 
Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You just heard If You Want to Be President by The Fugs. Our show is the graphically radical Paul Buell. Before the break, Buell asserted that Bernie Sanders is our era's Gene Debs. We'll go from Debs to the late 19th century British socialist, artist, and writer, William Morris, and on to Rosa Luxemburg, and then to the Irish rebel, James Connolly. But first, we continue our discussion with Paul Buell, giving us a bit of a history lesson about Gene Debs, and a little verse from Indiana poet laureate James Whitcomb Riley. It's a necessary lesson. We're forgetting the battles that have already been fought to loose the chains of the capitalist owners. He came from Terre Haute, and uh, many people in his hometown uh, used to say things like, Gene, you're right about everything, but you're a thousand years too early. Uh, and James Whitcomb Riley was my parents' very favorite poet, uh, the, the most fond in poet in, in the history of Indiana, uh, known by 1900, if this isn't too dull for most of your listeners or too familiar for your listeners, to be uh, writing these bucolic poems, sentimental poems about what Indiana was like 40 years earlier when he was a boy, uh, or sentimental poems about an old man saying, where is that lovely girl I met 40 years ago, and so forth and so forth, and in the last stanza, he says, and here she is coming in the door. Uh, Gene Deb said, no real man looks upon his aged wife any different from the first, from, from their wedding day. That's the sort of sentimentalism that uh, James Whitcomb Riley inspired, was inspired to, to write based on uh, Eugene Debs's life. Well, uh, Gene Debs uh, was a railroad man, uh, a locomotive engineer, and a leader of the Union who most improbably declared his complete solidarity from the Mississippi, or really from Indiana westward, successfully with the embattled strikers in uh, Pullman, Illinois at the very bottom of Chicago, a wholly factory-owned town with the most terrible conditions that produced the most expensive uh, railroad cars in the world for the rich to sit in with crystal and be waited upon by servants and so forth and so forth. And uh, it was dramatically successful, like no labor solidarity, completely peaceful for a while, for some weeks. Then it was crushed and Debs was put in jail in, in Illinois. And then uh, he converted himself to socialism, tried to create a socialistic cooperative colonies in rural areas of the West for a few years. That was destined never to happen. And then he turned to 
really be a founder of the Socialist Party in uh, 1900. And, and that's when James Whitcomb Riley composed the following verse for his first run for the presidency. And there's Gene Debs, a man that stands and just holds up in his two hands the kindest heart that ever beat betwixt here and the judgment seat. That was supposed to be Indiana talk, or Indiana talk, right. as they called it then. Uh, so he remained a, a great personality in, uh, in Terre Haute, and uh, in many places across America where people of all ages, many of them veterans, aged veterans of the Civil War, like my great-great-grandfather, uh, saw in Debs the realization they'd hoped for when they had heard Lincoln or heard about, heard from Lincoln and all the other reformers and idealists and so forth and so forth. And he ran for president four times, uh, got 6% of the vote in 1912, almost a million votes, and then uh, opposed the war, was thrown in prison by Woodrow Wilson, our great liberal president, I'm using the phrase ironically, and got a million votes as prisoner number something or other in a federal prison. Uh, pardoned by uh, President Harding, emerged, health broken, died, uh, and remains one of the great martyrs of, of American liberal society. Well, thanks for that. Uh, we mentioned uh, uh, socialism again. It's one of those uh, interesting phrases or, or words that we, we've already covered, the fact of its abuse and then um, the, the fact that it now carries so many negative connotations for Americans, at least. Uh, I was... I came across a, a little short uh, essay by William Morris. I know you know something of William Morris, uh, How I Became a Socialist. And uh, he says, When I took that step, I was blankly ignorant of economics, never so much as opened Adam Smith, heard of Ricardo or, or Karl Marx. Oddly enough, I had read some of Mill, to wit, those posthumous papers of his in which he attacks sh socialism in its Fourierist guys. In those papers, he put the arguments as far as they go, clearly and honestly, and the result, so far as I was concerned, was to convince me that socialism was a necessary change and that it was possible to bring about in our own days. That was 1894. Indeed, and, and William Morris, one of my very favorite figures, the very favorite figure of the great British peace leader and historian E.P. Thompson, a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, William Morris was, is renowned as one of the great designers of, of art, uh, in many different forms. Uh, he was also, uh, the grandest poet in late 19th century in England, had repeatedly refused to be named Poet Laureate. Uh, he was, uh, Morris Chairs are probably the way he's most remembered in the U.S. O over in England, every middle class person has grown up with Morris design wallpaper in their middle class homes. Uh, so he, he, he was a founder of British socialism and a great visionary and the author of News from Nowhere, a very famous utopian novel about a society that learned to be cooperative. Uh, a, a, a fantastic figure who represents the way many people have seen socialism, less an economic system than you could call a spiritual system. You don't have to be theistic to see it as a, as, as a spiritual system. And, and indeed, uh, Indiana and Illinois had thousands of Christian socialists uh, before 1920 and some since uh, who uh, mainly saw that the society needed somehow or other uh, to take a cooperative direction or 
the human race would destroy itself in a series of wars and, and assorted cruelties. And I'm not so far from that myself, despite the absence of, uh, of any religious affiliation. Again, as, as you learn or you become more aware of what's, what's happened in the past, it's, it's one of those things you continue to confront the, the wisdom that, that speaks to you, you know, out of that past from a hundred and, you know, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, from 1848 to forward in a sense to say, these things were diagnosed and you know talked about and predicted um, already. <laughs> you know, sort of at the at the inception of of a sort of a capitalist uh, perspective in in the world. Um, well, you know, William Morris, who, who uh, designed beautiful things, but also I neglected to say, was the founder of Anti Scrape, that is a, a, an influential society to prevent the destruction of historic buildings. Hmm. In Britain, that was uh, perhaps one of the main reasons he became a socialist. Uh, he saw Britain of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s becoming uglier every single year, from the way factories and the way industrial villages were designed and the terrible destruction that they were doing on the on the environment and the lives of people. He successfully defended. The, uh, the, the the division lines uh, between uh, historic estates, these sort of columns of, of uh, plants and, uh, of various kinds with uh, rare flowers and bushes and so forth. Uh, and that was really essential to him. And uh, a subcurrent, not a, a, a small subcurrent in the last 40 years, is a, 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 an ecological uh, vision of, of socialism, because uh, uh, otherwise uh, ugliness and disruption will surely overwhelm the world and uh, destroy the bird population, which means a great deal to me. But every means of, of going on. Uh, one of my recent comics, the, the most successful, called Red Rosa, drawn by a, a British woman, Kate Evans, uh, remind me that Rosa Luxemburg, the great German Jewish socialist of the 1910s, uh, put forward very clearly the idea that uh, capitalism, instead of being doomed, could continue itself through ravaging the undeveloped world. And it would surely do so if given the opportunity to do so. Uh, I sound like I'm plugging my books, but that <laughs> book led me to the next little book produced for the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Easter uprising in, in Dublin in uh, 1916, a little uh, book of comics called A Full Life, James Connolly, the Irish Rebel, because uh, James Connolly also uh, saw that uh, Ireland was only a colony of, uh, of Britain all this time, and that capitalism would save itself by invading and uh, destroying so much of the culture and society of, of the rest of Africa and Asia as it had destroyed so much of the society of Ireland before the, the conquest and uh, all of the resulting uh, losses, uh, much worse in those other places. But the point is that uh, Connolly saw it from the standpoint of an Irishman. Now, I would add that uh, James Connolly, Rosa Luxemburg, and Eugene Debs were all martyrs. The first two of them were murdered, and uh, and Gene Debs never recovered from what the U.S. government did to him. So th this is the fate of many of the great uh, radical visionaries. They are unacceptable to 
those in power, and they are disposed of. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left and art comics editor extraordinaire. Well, as you, you delineate these particular uh, historical figures, uh, martyrs, um, you know, we went from Morris to Debs to Rosen Luxemburg to James Connolly. I guess we could name, uh, list off the, the rest of your work with the, the art comic as well to sort of see how you've, I guess, curated a kind of usable past of the radical left. Would you, would you call it that? I guess I would because I had devoted a great deal of, of time, uh, not only the kind of old-fashioned scholarship of going to archives, uh, but also a great deal of the time to creating oral history programs. So I would actually go out and, and talk to people who were in their 80s and who remembered these movements before they died and did it from working-class movements and unions to the, to the Hollywood uh, Reds, the, those who wrote some of the best movies from the late 1930s to the late early or 1950s and then were driven away, uh, I sort of left that work behind or on the side uh, as I approached retirement and turned instead to creating books of comic art because they seemed to me to be a way to reach young people, but also because since uh, boyhood in Champagne and the reading of mad comics, I'd been a bit obsessed with comic art and its potential role as a social, as a form of social criticism, but also in the form of comic art and the ways in which comics could express through a popular art form a real artistic creativity and, and innovation within the art world. Actually, we did a program here on your uh, Rosa Luxemburg. We had Kate Evans on oh, on the wonderful. program. Uh, it was a great, great book. Uh, and it actually, in the process of, of thinking through that program, uh, it's, it uh, pushed me into trying to understand your role and your role as editor and what editing uh -huh. In, in these, um, in these situations with these particular books and, and artists and text, you know, how, how your role figures in. What does an editor do? Uh, does it change from book to book? Does it, does it expand? Does it shrink depending on the particular project? Yes. The answer is it changes enormously from book to book and it varies as widely as from Red Rosa where uh, I organized the project, uh, got a publisher, arranged for its financing for her, and various other kinds of things that needed to be done to make it possible, uh, and named her as the artist also. Uh, but uh, then uh, left her alone, uh, because she wanted to be left alone, uh, but also because she just did not need my she did not need 10 minutes of my help in her creation of it. Now, I contrast that to a book that will appear this fall called Johnny Appleseed, Green Dreamer of the Frontier. Uh, a wonderful young artist named Noah Van Skyver uh, did the artwork. I wrote all of the text myself hmm. and gave him a good idea of what every, every page should look like. So those are the two extremes. And in the middle, there's all sorts of other uh, forms of uh, me supervising something or making serious criticisms and the artist responding by following my criticisms or telling me to go to hell <laughs> or something else. Uh, and then I, I should say that uh, post-production, as they say in the movie world, 
is done by great teams of highly paid people in movies, but in my cases, uh, is often done largely by me. The question that I had tried to understand as I was uh, sort of dipping in here and there to some of your books, you've got uh, some that are single uh, artist, single illustrator, and then some that are sort of compendia or uh, a mix Anthologies. of... Anthologies. Yeah, yeah, anthologies of, of work, not only in terms of the the area covered, so Bohemians would be one in particular, where you cover multiple uh, characters that are uh, Bohemian uh, or represent a Bohemian style of life, and those are illustrated by separate artists, sort of offering a new or different kind of flavor with each uh, character. Was there a way in which you have a sense for this artist would fit this particular historical figure? Sure, sure. And sometimes I have had a co-editor who helped make that determination. Mm. Uh, really, this began, as I said, I published Radical America Comics in 1969 with Gilbert Shelton of, heads of, of uh, fabulous Furry Freak Brothers just then being invented. Uh, and then I had a, an inexplicable 36-year lapse until the appearance of Wobblies, which was to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Industrial Workers of the World in, uh, in 1905. And Wobblies had uh, more than a dozen artists, uh, but one of my co-editor was in a circle which publishes an annual in Greater New York called World War III Illustrated with some extremely talented people. And half of the artists in that book came from the World War III circle, uh, 30 or 40 years younger than me, and the other half were old-timers from the underground press uh, who had been uh, hit their popular height as artists between 1970 and 1980, uh, like Sharon Rudolph and, and Trina Roberts, who were two of the four mothers, so to speak, of, of women's liberation comics. Uh, it was my effort to, to join these generations of, uh, of radical comic artists. And I'd say that has sort of continued, I'd, but I don't want to fail to mention my late friend Harvey Picar, uh, because uh, he was a singular figure within comic art, among the most important in the 80s and 90s. Helen Mirren, the actress, once said Harvey Picar created a new way for, for people across the world to read comics. And I think that's really true. I, I came upon him when he exhausted his Harvey Picar character. He was bored with it uh, and wanted to do something different. And so I brought him to this guy who was still working in the VA hospital in, in Cleveland uh, uh, as a clerk, uh, brought him into doing social history. And together we uh, created The Beats, one of the best-selling of my uh, comic books, and a number of others. Uh, culminating after his death in uh, Yiddishkeit, this story of, of a kind of Jewishness through the, the century, but also an adaptation of Stud, the famous Studs Terkel's oral histories uh, working, that is, uh, Studs interviewing people in Chicago and elsewhere about the effect that their jobs had on their lives. And these, along with Bohemians, seem to me among my most interesting books to me, but it seems as if uh, that genre has uh, not continued to succeed. <laughs> and, and singular books about singular figures are the ones that have the greatest opportunity to reach people. 
It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left, art comics editor extraordinaire, and hopeful supporter of Bernie Sanders. When we come back, we'll seek to find out how Buell thinks the Sanders energy and his supporters' clear thirst for real social change can move the discussion from the national to the local. Stay with us for more on Interchange on WFHB. Sunshine and the sunshine, sunshine laughs upon my face, and the Welcome back to Interchange. You just heard Morning, Morning by the Fugs. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's Interchange is a conversation with Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left and art comics editor extraordinaire. In this segment, Buell goes deeper into the ways in which those mobilized by Sanders can move down ticket to transform the Democratic Party to connect with wider social movements. Again, Buell offers an example out of the past to demonstrate the ways people can be public-minded without being damagingly partisan. I think it's probably worth um, exploring uh, for the world at large or to, to imagine the, the sort of curriculum uh, that you've created in a, uh, with these particular, even just with the comic books, let alone your work otherwise, but uh, as a way to say these are instructive um, characters, figures, movements, times, um, and here it is in a particular format, a particular medium that you hope to be able to reach particular kinds of readers. It's one of those things that, that strikes me. Um, I, you know, again, grew up in an era where comic books were not things of weight. They're Marvel comics, you know, they're, yeah. uh, yeah. so, you know, there's a clash here between trying to understand what a comic is and how it reaches a particular, um, um, type of reader, perhaps. Uh, I know earlier you mentioned trying to reach young people um, with with a comic, and uh, I, I just have no sense of that, personally. So I was wondering if you had a way in which you understand the, the sort of division of, of sort of comics from a Marvel universe or a DC Comics universe or whatever it is that's a superhero yeah. comic universe, and this reality-based you know, comics uh, that you seem well, to... Well, let know me complicate right it still further. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, when my latest collaborator, Noah Van Skyver, uh, moved to Columbus, Ohio to be with uh, the girl he wants to live with, uh, the young woman, uh, the alternative monthly newspaper carried a full-page interview with them to the effect that a, a great comic artist of today had moved to Columbus. Uh, uh, not every reader of comic books, even in Columbus, would uh, know about this or consider it to be giant news. But there's a world that Noah Van Skyver and uh, 10,000 10, other mostly young 
sell each other their comics, they trade each other their comics, they uh, get enough money to take a, a bus or drive an old car back from wherever they live to get back there. And uh, some of them are invited to speak and, and show their work in Europe where comics are considered a, a, an art form much more widely than in the U.S. That's a world that uh, you and I don't seem to be uh, very much part of, mm-hmm. don't expect to be very much part of. Uh, but uh, it's a, a very real world for a subgenre of young people. Uh, and uh, it, it I wouldn't say it coincides with, but it overlaps with a, uh, a world in which comics are successfully used for wider educational purposes. I guess I'd uh, point to my uh, editorial adaptation of Howard Zinn's People's History of the U.S. Uh, the adaptation was a people's history of American empire uh, drawn by a, a Madison-based labor cartoonist, Mike Konopaki, and uh, scripted mostly not by me, but by a blacklisted uh, newspaper uh, uh, writer and editor named Dave Wagner, who had led the newspaper strike in Madison of the 1970s. Uh, well, sold 75,000 so far, and it's a way of understanding the nature of the American empire and its deleterious effects in the world, but also struggles against it to, to, to do something better. Uh, and uh, it continues to be assigned and is received by uh, thousands of young people as, as a way to understand a history that is not so easily understood in, in prose as younger generations take in the information visually and orally rather than taking it in as uh, as written form. Hmm. And that's what I'm aiming at. Then is it more than two percent of the market of uh, of comics dominated by superheroes, and to a lesser extent by these sort of noir uh, things? Uh, no, it isn't. But it's a little tiny chunk that uh, manages to overlap with other kinds of, I suppose you call them alternative comics, and have comic cons. So is it bigger or smaller than than these uh, other competing things? Is definitely smaller, but uh, if things are changing so rapidly with the shift of of younger people towards visual forms, that uh, we don't know yet at all what the potential of this is. And I've begun to do it at an advanced age, to put it mildly, but it uh, it brings me back to my childhood and childish. Uh, interests uh, in uh, an approaching second childhood. You know, as you were talking, I I, t- I tend to like want there to be a larger, obviously a larger exposure to things like this, as as you talk about its uh, size and its comparative size to to the industry of imagery and images that that serve an, an another purpose rather than this uh, idea of trying to figure out a world in which we live together to uh, to help e- each other in some sense, a, a world of mutual aid and, and cooperation versus a world of, of competition and profit. But the, the ways in which we ha- try to imagine how to get from there to here or here to there in a sense, right? So we, we walk through a period now where Bernie Sanders uh, sort of mobilized 
people, maybe this group of readers even that you're talking about, maybe they overlap. These are the, the graphic uh, art uh, comic art. readers and that they have to walk further still. You know, we all, we all have to sort of keep moving in that direction uh, versus sort of falling back as the wave crests and crashes yeah. back down. How do we move into that place where what Bernie Sanders has achieved isn't a top-level achievement but trickles into local uh, politics? Media-wise, uh, one has to look at Michael Moore and his accomplishments, including the, the latest uh, documentary film, because he's found a way to make it funny, to make it relevant, to make it interesting, and uh, he has an enormous audience. Are other people able to do such things? Evidently not. But uh, that shows one sort of way forward. There's a, a tremendous amount of discussion, including a, a conference in Chicago next weekend, next Saturday and Sunday, I, I can't attend, uh, on finding ways to continue the mobilization of, of, of Bernie Sanders supporters. And directed, among other places, to uh, down-ticket uh, races in the expectation of electing progressive Democrats who represent everything that is the opposite of the Hillary Clinton-dominating uh, team. And I have considerable hopes for that. Uh, on the other hand, a, a lifetime of experience uh, does remind me that uh, you can't defeat City Hall or it's very difficult to defeat City Hall, and that uh, Hillary Clinton, as much as Donald Trump, is City Hall. So uh, it's, a, it, it's a considerable slog, but, but perhaps in, in a season of the most dislikable presidential candidates in uh, modern history, uh, certainly my history going back to the days of Eisenhower, beloved by everybody, uh, that there's room for uh, different views, and uh, there's a, an opportunity, especially for those people under 30, who, you know, in a sense, have no choice. Things are quite bad for them, and, and no sign that things are getting any better. <clears throat> there's opportunity and reason for finding ways to continue to build social movements. Over the decades, since the 1960s, i grown weary of saying we can't predict new social movements. I'm weary because a decade or two goes by and, and they don't come into existence, and all of the optimism in that phrase seems to be drained out. But it is true that we cannot predict social movements. There certainly was no way to predict Occupy. There certainly was no way to predict Black Lives Matter. And to predict the impact and the size of the Bernie movement uh, was something that only a foolish person would have uh, done 18 months ago. And uh, certainly I, I didn't do it. We don't know what's coming over the horizon. We know it will involve an effort to transform parts of the Democratic Party from the bottom up. Uh, we don't know whether those will be successful in any reasonable way or not. But we know that they uh, will and must uh, connect with uh, wider social movements in a whole variety of different directions. And uh, I may have exhausted my vast wisdom at this point. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Paul Buell, historian of America's radical left and art comics editor extraordinaire. 
one one thing just um, to to sort of try to understand the the down ticket idea, right? There's a way in which social movements that seem to need more and more people because they have less and less uh, money in some sense, right? We're trying to manage a, a moneyed down ticket versus a uh, an impoverished uh, in terms of, of cash, but uh, perhaps one in which you can gather lots of people. Much harder to do. Somebody has lots of cash and they dispense with it pretty readily, but it's hard but to let gather me people. Anal- yeah. Let me analyze this in a, in, in a somewhat different way, sure. although uh, not con- not contrasting way. My father was a, a geologist worked for the state of Illinois, and uh, his job was to find water supplies for farmers in small towns by uh, discovering uh, gravel, basically, subterranean gravel. Uh, He was a lifelong Republican, like my mother, a lifelong Republican. But in that generation, they were born in 1905. They just as firmly believed in public schools, public hospitals, uh, state services to small farms and, and, uh, and small towns, and a whole libraries and a whole specter of public institutions, almost all of which have been subverted, transformed, privatized, and in many ways uh, destroyed, or their value eroded by the latest generations of conservatives, but uh, not so much less by uh, neoliberals. Mm -hmm. All that public world that has been stolen away through the uh, uh, doings of, uh, of the power of capital, but the willingness of city and state governments and, uh, and all sorts of other agencies which previously had been thought of as part of the, of the public good. Hmm. Well, Paul, can you tell me as, as uh, I guess, as briefly as you feel you can, or as expansively as you'd like to, uh, when we think about the left and, and you use the term radical left, um, what's radical about it? Having founded a, a magazine called uh, Radical America mm-hmm. in uh, 1967 uh, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, the sort of very much of a sort of Midwestern. Uh, an attempt to find somewhere within U.S. history some real roots of, uh, of, of our social movements as opposed to finding them in China or Russia or, or something in, uh, believing that the power of big business cannot be channeled toward the public good. Uh, in the firm conviction that, uh, Wisconsin Governor, great 20th century hero Robert La Follette articulated uh, in the first 30 years uh, of the century uh, that uh, a society, uh, a city or a state that's run by out-of-state bankers uh, cannot operate as a democracy. Uh, a, a vision that uh, a society based on empire and empire's needs to run the whole world, to uh, have as many wars as necessary to drive people down, to uh, exploit the uh, social, economic, natural resources of everywhere on the planet is uh, a proper way rather than utter madness. Uh, These seem to me very, very uh, radical. 
radical ideas, the idea that uh, we should live in a, a society that is carefully organizes its cities, its water supplies, uh, its uh, its nature reserves, that uh, thinking about how things can be made more beautiful is, is crucial to how young people see the world. These are extremely radical ideas in a, in a society that grows uglier and uglier as, as every month goes on. It's staggering to spend a few days in, in Copenhagen, uh, such a, a beautiful, well-organized city, and then come back to the USA, which so many people say is the greatest country in the world, and see devastation, uh, physical devastation and poverty uh, all around me. Uh, it, it's amazing that Americans can delude themselves this way uh, and also uh, make render themselves to such a degree as so materialist that all of the religious hosannas about our salvation uh, disguise the uh, the terribleness of, of things that are overtaking us. Uh, I think that uh, a radical vision is the only thing possible to overcome the despair which is so prevalent in so many corners of American society uh, and uh, is naturally the cause of so much violence, so much hatred, uh, so much willingness to push things to the edge because what the people have to lose anyway. I, I, I'm in danger of going on and on in this emotional vein because uh, that is the world I read about in the newspapers and see on television, but it's also the contrary to the kind of society that Bernie Sanders talks about and has helped hundreds of thousands of people to think is possible. That's our show. Thanks to Paul Buell for talking with me on the telephone from Madison, Wisconsin. Next time on Interchange, Colin Dayan joins us to talk about ghosts, dogs, and the law. Dayan has just published a weird little book called With Dogs at the Edge of Life, which is poetic, journalistic, and personal and centers upon our social use and misuse of dogs, and the ways in which dogs carry the representative burden of human social death. Dogs are constructed to fit with an elite intention to be little more than a human accessory that can be easily disposed of and replaced by next season's designer pooch. And at the same time, the mangy curs roaming among us at the edges of our lives are reminders of social inconsequence, and are easily rounded up and put down, always under the guise of humane intervention. The progressive parallels between dogs and humans at the edge of life. A conversation with Colin Dan on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. This is Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer for tonight's show is Rob Schoon. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson, and Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. And our final song from the Fugs, Life is Strange, takes us into the jazz menagerie. Coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Shake the evening